Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Two things each and every week. Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. We're going to do something very different this week. The issue of how we're going to conduct this presidential election and every other election down ballot in a pandemic weighs heavily on the minds of every American. So we've been talking to secretaries of state of both parties, Republican and Democrat across the country, to bring you the best information available. We also talked to the head of the Department of Homeland Security on cybersecurity. All those issues are going to be discussed in this episode, and we're going to start that conversation with Kim Wyman, Republican Secretary of State of Washington, and how long she thinks we may all have to wait for results. Mid to late November, is that your worst case scenario or is that something that you are generally expecting and you think the country should prepare itself for? It's something I'm expecting based on Washington's experience. Um, In our state, we have a postmark requirement. So that means that ballots can come in after election day in Washington state and still be valid if they have a valid postmark. What we see is half of our ballots come in on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So it is not possible election night for us to determine who's won because we still have so many ballots left to count. And I think you're going to see this in election offices across the country because they're just not used to dealing with the high volumes of either absentee voting or vote by mail uh, elections. So uh, we're going to have a large number of ballots left to count by midnight election night, and people are going to have to be very patient because we want to count them accurately. What are your concerns about the ability and the willingness of the country to be patient? Well, I've been doing elections for 27 years, and I've found that after election night, uh, the campaigns wind down, and people just want to know who won, and they want to know fast. And like any system, there are three variables, speed, accuracy, and cost, and you can have two in elections. So you can have it fast, and you can have it cheap, but it's not going to be very accurate, and we want accuracy above everything. So it's going to take time. And there is a direct linkage between accuracy and time, if I hear you correctly. Absolutely. Uh, Absentee ballots or mail-in ballots tend to be more uh, labor-intensive because you have to check the signature on the the envelope to match it against the voter registration record. You need to open the envelope, separate out the security envelope, then remove the voter's ballot. And voters who vote at home are creative. And what I mean by that is they, they don't always follow instructions perfectly. So they may circle the name of the candidate rather than filling in the oval. And all of those steps take time to, uh, to possibly even have to make a, make a copy of the ballot. And again, having secure processes to do it so that you accurately count the ballot. And that time is what works against election officials uh, because voters' patients are not very good after election day. How long has Washington been voting by mail? We actually had the authority to start moving to vote by mail in 2005. And even when the legislature allowed counties to do that, it still took us a full five more years to move completely to vote by mail as a state because uh, some counties just needed time to spool up their um, administrative processes. Okay, that's a five to six year time horizon. No one who is moving in that direction right now has a five or six year time horizon. What are the complications they are likely to face and how much is your phone ringing off the hook from other secretaries of state saying, oh my gosh, what do we do? 
Well, the, the phone has been ringing off the hook since about mid-March, and uh, election officials across the country are all scrambling, trying to figure out the best way to serve their voters, and doing that in a you know, politically polarized environment. And uh, it's just that part is challenging on its own. And then when they start looking at the crushing volume of mail-in ballots that they are going to receive, um, they're trying to figure out how to get through them. So for example, uh, when you have a state like Louisiana, where they're used to seeing one to 2% of their ballots returned by mail, now to suddenly have 50 or 60% return means that they are getting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of ballots back and they have to have high-speed sorting equipment to process it or uh, digitize signatures for their voter registration forms. And all of these things took Washington years to build in. They are having to do it in a matter of months. President Trump says mail-in balloting is a pathway to fraud, true or false? Uh, our experience in Washington state has been, uh, that statement would be false. Is there any generalized truth to it? Is there something about it that is more susceptible to fraud than another kind of voting? I think the perception of it is by many people, and I, I have many people in my state that, that perceive vote by mail as a fraudulent activity, until you, I start walking them through all of the safeguards that we've built in. When I show them uh, how counties prepare the mail out ballots and how we work with the post office to track those ballots from the, the time they leave the dock to the time they arrive at a voter's home. When we talk about the security measures that are in place for the voter to check when their ballot goes back into the mail and that counties, uh, county officials receive those ballots. When I talk about checking every single signature against the one on file and, uh, and all of the security measures, and there are multiple layers to it, I can even usually convince the most staunch critic that the system is secure. Um, it's all about transparency in our state, and uh, the more transparent we can be, the more confidence people have in the, in the process. And I think that that's really what, what needs to happen on the national level is uh, local election officials need to share with their local communities what they're doing to protect the ballots uh, that they are in charge of. And I think when people see that, they have more confidence in their local officials, and hopefully that translates out to uh, all election officials. And as a statistical matter, our vote now, as I gather it, is less suppressed and less fraudulent than it ever has been. That is correct. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing it in, in different uh, statistics. We had, a, for example, in Washington, are part of a, a consortium of states that compares our data to keep addresses up to date. And we did a comparison of our voter records in 2018 to see if we had any voters that voted more than once. And we did, in fact, find 142 people in Washington state voted more than once or voted on behalf of a deceased family member. Um, that was out of 3.2 million ballots cast. So is it perfect? No. Is it acceptable? No. But is it rampant fraud? Absolutely not. And so we're prosecuting those cases right now and, and uh, we'll move forward. But I think that Washington is, is definitely indicative of, of many states across the country in our experience. And, and I think in terms of access, it's the same, same experience. We have very wide access with vote by mail and work very hard to make sure everyone has the opportunity to participate. When you talk to other secretaries of state, would you say on a scale of one to 10, one being perfect namaste calm and 10 every hair upon their head in raging fire, thinking about the November 3rd election, where are they? I wish we were at like three, but I think most of us are at about 20. <laughs> we started this conversation about the need for patience and with patience is a atmosphere of calm. Is the president helping that? <laughs> well, I, I would say that everyone that is weighed in on the election from a partisan position, including the president, including members of Congress, um, and have created this binary choice that we absolutely have to do one or the other is really um, doing a disservice to the country. And, uh, and, it, and I will be bipartisan in how I answer this because I've heard Democrats make very similar, you know, ultimatums. If we don't give every voter in this country the opportunity to vote by mail, then this, this election is going to be fraught with voter suppression. And that's just as inflammatory as, as the tweets that are coming out of the White House that say that there's going to be rampant fraud. And it's, it's, 
irresponsible for people in leadership positions to be making our election administration a, a polarizing event. Half of the country believes Joe Biden's going to win. Half of the country believes President Trump's going to win. And both of them believe it to their core and cannot accept that there could be any other outcome. And our job as election officials is to inspire confidence in the losers. More of our conversation about election 2020 and the other side of this break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We shot some of these Zoom ways. We shot some of these with regular cameras. Everything is a mashup these days in terms of television presentation. Chris Krebs is our next guest. He is the head of the Department of Homeland Security's Division on Election Cybersecurity. And we talked to him about, at least first, how American voters will need to have a plan to be much more proactive to vote successfully this time around. There's a lot of information out there. There are a lot of resources. I think, in fact, 2020 is, is unique in, in many respects, but there's never been this much information out there for the voter. Every state is pushing information out there. Every elected uh, state, uh, Secretary of State, like you mentioned, I think you're talking to a few of those as well. They have done an incredible job of pushing guidance, awareness, information out there, uh, whether online or paper, or mailers, flyers, whatever it is, TV spots. Uh, they're, they're really pushing good information out there for the American voter. Uh, so, so make sure you look to those trusted sources. Look to those secretaries of state. Uh, there's, there's a great campaign going on, Trusted Info 2020, that the National Association of Secretaries of State and the National Association of State Election Directors uh, launched last year. And again, it's, it's go to your trusted sources of information at the state level on, on the exactly how the election will happen in your jurisdiction. We've talked to at least 10 secretaries of state, and we ask them a question, and they always kind of have an interesting reaction to it. I say, you obviously are a partisan, you have a political party, and they say yes. I say, is that how you approach your job? And they say no. Do you believe that to be true, that this is fundamentally an election official job and secondarily a partisan position? Well, I, you know, you've touched on just now the, the fact that they're from political parties. Um, specifically the way that we engage as CISA, as the cyber agency, is from a cybersecurity perspective to pro provide them the security resources, the technical assistance, the advi uh, advice and guidance that they need. And fundamentally, as I look at it, cybersecurity is apolitical. So whether it's a Democrat, uh, Democratic Secretary of State from California or a Republican Secretary of State from Iowa, uh, we work with everybody, and it, it really has been um, a great experience over the last three and a half years. We took some lumps uh, during and after 2016, but but we've really recommitted to this this uh, bipartisan, almost a political partnership of election security and making sure that 2020 is as secure as possible. Everyone's tempted to say, "Well, how are things compared to 2016?" But you have a test case in 2018. You had yeah. a work through. Yeah. What did you learn there, and what does that build toward 2020? Well, I. You know, when you when you look at the differences between 2020 and 2016, it, it truly is night and day. So, so the first things first, we have um, truly a, a vibrant election security community of practice. We have all 50 states working together, thousands of jurisdictions across the country. The full might of the United States government's national security apparatus is defending these elections. That uh, that existed to some extent in 16, but but we have a process, we have a plan, we have mechanisms for that right now, and it really is like nothing that's ever taken place before. Uh, the second thing is is we have better visibility across these these election systems, the the election networks of the 50 states, and it's it's remarkable in that that particularly as we sit here in August of 2020, knowing what we know about the threats. Uh, targeting uh, election systems, it's night and day from 16. 16, there was a, a, a lot of activity. 
uh, a lot of focused nation-state activity. Right now, we're just not seeing that. Are you saying there's less aggregate nefarious activity, or we're better at repelling it? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes, both. So, so there's, there's, we're seeing less activity. Okay. That, that's what I'm telling, telling you from an intelligence perspective. There's less activity. Less bombardment, less yeah, trying to get in. Cyber, cyber security activity against election infrastructure. Right. Just to be very clear about my mission, cyber security services in support of state and local election systems. So from a threat, cyber security threat perspective, significantly different threat landscape than 16, much, much lower. Uh, particularly when you talk about nation state adversaries. Um, and then the second piece is, is the deterrence piece of, of the, the full might again of the national security community in terms of getting out there and disrupting activity. And then the third piece, which, which is again, which is where we really focus, is making sure that those systems that support the process, the election administration process, voter registration database, election night reporting, just the back-end systems to, to get the day-to-day -day operations of an election uh, system, they're absolutely more secure, better equipped than they were four years ago. Because it's not just about switching a vote, which has never happened that we're aware of, right. but you could get in and just change one series of numbers, just one in one column, yeah on a voter, voter registration database and cause all sorts of havoc. Yeah, so, so we're worried about really kind of three things. Um, and it's typically called the confidentiality, or the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability triad, the CIA triad. But to use that in more kind of simple terms, is, is, is the data private? Um, is the data accurate? And is the data there when you need it? And so, yeah, it, it is partly we're worried about bad guys getting in and, and changing voter reg, uh, voter registration data, and you know changing a, a letter here or a column there and offsetting. Um, and we're also concerned about you know, ransomware. I, I suspect every single one of your viewers has probably had some experience, um, whether it's a local uh, government agency that's been disrupted by uh, a ransomware attack. And so we think about these things too. Is the, is the system there when you need it to work? And, and so, you know, for the last year and a half, we've really been focused on increasing the security of things that matter, like voter registration, where, where the data has to be accurate, like a voter registration database. Really been working to harden those systems. But, but we also understand that, that perfect security is not a thing. It, it, it's just, it's A, it's not what you want to shoot for because it's not even attainable. But then the second piece is, okay, so, so assume you're going to lose a system. What's your backup plan? What's your analog capability. And, and you know what that is? Paper. Paper. Which, which brings us to paper yeah. trails, which yep. is what mail ballots guarantee. Well, so anytime you introduce paper into the process, election or otherwise, what you do is you, you provide an opportunity to audit. And auditing is critically important because if, if you detect any anomalies, you can, you can roll the tape back, right? You've got the receipts. You can check what the, 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 the true outcome is. And so we've really been encouraging, and, and you know, this is the trend anyway, both in the market from election vendors, but also the where state and locals are going of more paper-based uh, systems, more, more paper records associated with every ballot cast. Which is what comes with a mail-in ballot. Uh, yeah, so, so you see, anytime you get paper into the hands of a voter, uh, you put that into the process and you've got an audit opportunity. So it is not by definition a more fraudulent way to cast a ballot. Well, look, what we're focused on with voting is the systems that underpin the process. So from a cybersecurity perspective, we don't see, um, what we see more than anything is a shift. So as states move from in-person voting to expanded absentee or mail-in, um, it's, it's the risk is, uh, is just shifting. There's not more risk. It's just shifting to a different place. Do you worry about a foreign actor with negative intentions printing lots of ballots to confuse things? So we've looked at that, and I think in the in the world of theoretical attacks, um, could it be done? Could it be launched? Sure, but but the challenge with that is that the security controls built into this process um, would likely make that very very difficult to do in an undetected manner. Now it could it could create chaos. It could so. Um, which I hate that word so, but it could absolutely um, gum up the system, but it would be detected. I mean, the, the, 
the cardstock involved, the, the delicate. The weight of the paper, in other yeah, words. Yeah, the, the weight of the paper, the, the transparent or translucency uh, of the paper, the, the systems themselves that, you know, this is not just printer paper that you pick up at, at, at Staples or whatever. This is, this is very specially designed and printed uh, in, in manufactured paper by a very a limited, system. yeah, and, and, and very special machines that count it and sensitive, sensitive machines. So when we look at this, um, you know, it would be very hard to do in an undetectable manner. Where does the Postal Service fit in that? Yeah, the po I mean, the Postal Service is part of that process that, that moves ballots, that moves uh, absentee request uh, applications through the, through the process. So they're, they're a partner um, from a cybersecurity perspective. We have been working with them. They're, they're, they take part of a number of our cybersecurity services, uh, and we're going to continue working with them to make sure that their systems are secure. And a vital link in this chain. Yeah, absolutely. So you can tell at the federal level, Chris Krebs feels we are better prepared and states are working more cooperatively. Next up in our ongoing and continuous conversation, at least this episode, about how to put this election together, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. She is the Secretary of State of New Mexico. She has another title we'll share on the other side of the break. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Maggie Toulouse-Oliver has another title. She is the incoming president of the National Association of Secretaries of State. Wow, what a time to be doing that, right? Better time? Worse time? Let's find out. Yeah, yes, there is. There could be a time when uh, nothing's going on and there's nothing to do. Uh, there, you know, something about those of us who run for this particular job and who run elections for a living, um, I've actually been running elections for 14 years. I was a local uh, election official for 10 years before I took this job on. Uh, you have to be somebody who who enjoys working really hard, uh, enjoys a challenge, uh, loves logistics and, and figuring out uh, puzzles and how to solve problems. And um, that's who I am. Um, I'm not going to lie. This is going to be a very hard election. It already is a very hard election. It's just going to continue down that path. So, yeah, this is a huge challenge. Um, but I'm... I'm up to it as much as I think anybody could be. And as you've had conversations with other secretaries of state around the country, what is uppermost in their minds in terms of concerns? What's uppermost in your mind? Well, we're always concerned about making sure we have a fair, accessible election, uh, no matter what. And of course, the pandemic is just a tremendous challenge that none of us foresaw, at least not before early this year, uh, that none of us sort of anticipated having to manage on top of what we already knew was going to be a very contentious uh, election process this fall. And so um, this is definitely a layer of complication that is sort of adding to the mix, uh, so to speak. Right. And you, as a local official, if I read correctly, were innovative in a couple of ways. You created an app that was helpful for people in that community to understand where their polling places were, what the hours were, how they could access mm -hmm. information. What did you learn about that that might be applicable during this time when people are going to be so hungry for information and need it yeah. more than ever? Well, when I was the county clerk in Bernalillo County, which is the Albuquerque metro area, the biggest jurisdiction in New Mexico, we actually completely changed uh, the way people voted. And we, we got away from, you know, uh, you go to one precinct location on election day, that's your only place that you can go. It's open from, you know, seven to seven, and that's your only opportunity. And we really expanded the choices and options for voters. The app was just another way to sort of get that information out there. You know, if, if you're a polling location around the corner was, you know, the lines were too long because, of course, that's an issue we, we've seen a lot of places for many years in elections. Well, then you can go to one maybe a, a couple miles away where the line is really short, right? Um, so those types of things, I think, have really uh, adding choice, adding options, creating online options for voters to access information, voter registration, things like that. Um, those tools are coming really in handy during this process. Um, here in New Mexico specifically, we already had online voter registration. We had online absentee ballot applications, and we don't require an excuse to vote absentee. So as we were gearing up for our primary in June, we already had some of the basic tools in place that we needed uh, to keep people voting safely from their homes. As you know, some states do not, though. They don't have those procedures. They don't have those rules, and they don't have that experience. How behind the curve are they? 
you know, what I will say for, for many of those states, and, and as you know, I, you know, I dialogue with my colleagues quite frequently, um, many of them are, are moving to take really decisive steps to remove some of those barriers. Uh, for those who, who just can't because maybe they've, they've got a constitutional issue or, or a statutory issue that they just can't get around, um, they are taking steps to inform the public and to, you know, make sure that they have inf the information that they need and, and to really maybe expand in-person options, right? So folks aren't crowding at one location. So uh, I wouldn't say they're behind the curve, but I would say they have extra challenges, right, on top of these, uh, these other challenges that the pandemic presents. And, and what I can say is uniformly, uh, every single Secretary of State or Chief Election official in this country is working really diligently to kind of chip away at these issues to ease that access uh, during the pandemic. We were talking to someone who you may know well, Kim Wyman, Secretary of State of the state of Washington, and she said to us, you know, I'm worried about places like New Mexico where they have seen, for various reasons, the pandemic and other external reasons, budget revenues fall. Any state where that has happened, and almost every state it has happened to one degree or another, are under pressure. And this is the very time when states need more money and resources to put these elections on properly. Is that a real right. concern there and nationwide? Well, it, it absolutely is. And, and of course, it is in, in some places more than others, like my state here in New Mexico. Uh, Kim has been listening to me. I, I appreciate my colleague across the aisle so much because, you know, I've said, listen, um, many of your states, as we dialogue together, many of your states uh, may not need additional help or funding from the federal government. Um, but, you know, elections, especially federal elections, there's always some responsibility on the shoulders of the federal government to help make sure that they are safe and secure and accessible. So, for example, in the case of election security, um, that is, uh, you know, something that we are not fighting on a state by state level. We're fighting uh, the, the outside interference in our elections as a nation. And so federal aid to help us bolster election security at the state level has been helpful. So, too, do we need that type of aid to help battle the pandemic, which does not know state borders. It does not know county borders within a state. Um, and we already have received some funding here in New Mexico. That funding helped to get us through our June 2nd primary. But we are still going to have costs, particularly the PPE costs, and um, this is a, a huge challenge for many of our states, right, that have all of these unanticipated costs, either from PPE, which is exorbitant, uh, exorbitantly expensive, even if you can get it right now, or uh, opening uh, additional polling locations, hiring additional poll workers, whatever the additional cost is due to the pandemic, uh, it, it's definitely needed uh, in terms of additional federal funding. We've heard from many officials that one of the key factors to the success of this election will not be the mechanics that you and I have discussed, but the patience of the American people waiting for a result. True? I think that's absolutely true. You know, uh, we have this uh, sort of inside joke, uh, those of us that run elections, call the elections administrator's prayer, right? Let, dear Lord, uh, let the margins be wide, right? Because... <laughs> if the margins are wide on election night, even if there are still outstanding votes to be counted, normally it doesn't change the outcome of an election, right? And we don't have folks just sort of, you know, really tuned in and, and sort of waiting for every last ballot to be counted. But unfortunately, um, it's always the case that there are close elections, no, no matter where you are. And there will be races that won't be decided on election night, even under normal conditions, right? Um, my colleague, Katie Hobbs in Arizona, uh, won her uh, election to office in 2018 by by a very, very narrow margin. Uh, and they were uh, counting for days and days and days. I think it took about 11 days to get a, a final count. Uh, and so she didn't know whether she had been elected until 11 days after the election, right? So this is the reality under normal circumstances. This year, with so many new forms of voting, so many people participating in different ways, the pressure on our election officials and the U.S. Postal Service, there will undoubtedly be delays in election results. And I, the, the one thing that I think we all agree on as election officials nationwide is we would rather uh, take our time and make sure we are right uh, then, then speed through the process, make mistakes, and have to, you know, uh, correct uh, the outcome, right? I mean, that, that's always the word. I mean, we always re remember 2000, right? And Alberta being called for Al Gore and, and then, oh, no, never mind, we made an error. We don't want to see that happen on election night on November 3rd. And the state of New York is, I think, a living, breathing example of this situation right now. They had a very, very low history of incidents of mail-in balloting. 
it's gone up dramatically and the system's there overstressed, they are still counting some five weeks later ballots from the congressional primaries. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, again, I think it's important for voters to understand, you know, when when the, the victory night parties happen and, uh, you know, the, the elections are called and everybody cheers and goes home and goes to bed, election officials are always uh, still making sure the votes get in and counted. And, and uh, New York, five weeks is, is a really long time here in New Mexico. We have about three weeks of a, what we call the post-election canvas process. And we are counting, uh, you know, hand tally ballots. We are counting provisional ballots. We are still adding votes into the mix. That continues to happen until elections are certified in your state. And, and again, it's something most people don't pay attention to, but that is a, a, a typical process. Mail-in isn't for everybody, and mail-in is not a panacea. And I don't think that's a partisan observation to, to make that. No, so- I, com- I completely agree with that. Um, you know, I think the, the, the main goal of every election official in the country uh, this year is, is that a voter should not have to choose between their health and their ability to cast their ballot. Michigan, as we all remember, very close in 2016. They're changing and adapting their voting. We're going to talk to the Michigan Secretary of State next. Stay with us. This episode of The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Mostly, secretaries of state do not grab a lot of headlines, and if they do, it's usually for the wrong reasons. Jocelyn Benson is a secretary of state Democrat in Michigan. She came under fire from President Trump for moving toward mail-in ballotings and ballots and applications therefore. So we sat down with her, again via Zoom, to find out what's going on in Michigan and how she's preparing. Madam Secretary, we've heard from many of your colleagues who are secretaries of state and other election experts that one of the words most important for Americans this election year is patience. Mm. Patience after November 3rd. Do you agree? Yes, patience, but also um, perseverance, meaning that prior to Election Day, we need citizens, all voters, to be prepared to work extra hard and persevere to ensure that they adjust and adapt to any and all barriers that may emerge to impact their right to vote. So perseverance through those barriers and then patience after the fact, after the polls close, as we work uh, doubly fast and efficient and securely to accurately deliver the results of the elections as soon as possible. And do we talk about days of patience or maybe longer? Well, in our most recent August primary, it took uh, about an extra day to process all of the ballots sent through the mail and ensure they were counted accurately. So we're doubling everything uh, in terms of our expectation for the fall from that primary. So we anticipate Thursday, potentially Friday, unless the law is changed in Michigan to enable our clerks to begin processing those ballots sent through the mail ahead of time preparing them for, to be counted on election day so that they don't have to do any of the pre-processing and pre-preparation and can just spend election day tabulating. If we can get that legal change made through our legislature, you can and will ex- expect results must, much more efficiently after the polls close. We've talked to states that have a longer experience and a much larger volume of mail-in balloting. And the pre-processing, they say, is crucial to carrying this out both efficiently and accurately. It's really a no-brainer, and it's so striking to me that it's been such a heavy lift. I mean, we've been advocating, myself and our 1,500 clerks throughout the state of Michigan, we've been asking for this legislative change since I took office in early 2019. And here we are over a year and a half uh, later continuing to ask for it and seeing every election that goes by, it taking more and more time to process the increase in ballots sent through the mail. The data is there. The other states have already figured this out. So I'm hopeful we'll be able to do so uh, come November. 
but if not, if the legislature fails to act, citizens, not just in Michigan, but around the country need to know exactly why it will take a little bit longer, perhaps even a few days longer to get the full results out of Michigan. Either by number or percentage, how many more ballots do you expect to be submitted by mail than were in 2016? We're planning for it. I mean, well, I'll start by saying already 2.4 million citizens have requested to vote by mail this fall. That's already uh, more than double the uh, past record for a presidential election, which was 1.15 million in 2016. So we've seen a, a particular uptick after the 2018 uh, amendment to our state constitution that created a right to vote by mail for all of our citizens here in Michigan. That led to a real dramatic increase. It's only been uh, increased more through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and so we're anticipating at least 2.5, probably three, maybe even 3.5 million of the 5 million people who will be voting likely in this fall's election to be voting by mail. And again, that's a drastically larger percentage than ever before in our state. Uh, but we're ready. We've been preparing for this since I took office. We've been pre preparing for an uptick in people voting by mail. So we're building the infrastructure to prepare for that. We just really need our state legislature to come along with us and make the legal changes we need to ensure everything goes smoothly. The president has on occasion suggested that some foreign government could print millions of ballots and that would foul up the county. I've talked to other secretaries of state about this, but what are your protections in Michigan? Well, first, it's just not possible for anyone to print and send out ballots, uh, except for our clerks. Our clerks have the local authority to, uh, to uh, send out ballots and return ballots. And every ballot that is sent through the mail uh, goes through a multiple signature verification process, meaning when a ballot, before a ballot can even be sent to a voter, uh, the, uh, the voter must request that ballot to be sent to them. They sign that form. That signature is then matched to the signature we have on file then the ballot is sent. And before that ballot once returned is even counted, there's an additional signature verification when the voter signs the outside of the envelope and that signature is checked to verify the voter's identity. So it is you know, near impossible uh, for anyone to interfere with that uh, very secure process that's not just in place in Michigan, but in many other states as well. Uh, and really what's going on here through the, the, um, the spreading of these myths and, and, and fears that are unfounded and not based on any facts or data is an attempt we believe to undermine citizens' confidence uh, in, in the elections process and in the outcome of the elections. And that's what we're focused on making sure that we debunk, that we address uh, so that we can instill confidence in all of our citizens that regardless of who they're voting for, their vote will count and the results of our elections will be an accurate reflection of their will. Madam Secretary, I don't need to tell you this number. I'm sure you know it well, 10,704. That's the vote total in which Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton, a very, very close margin in Michigan. In 2020, do you need to run a perfect election? Well, I'll tell you another number, 10,694. That's the number of balance that were sent through the mail that were valid and couldn't be counted for various reasons in our last August primary. And if we anticipate a lot of those, uh, of, the, of that 10,000, 6,400 ballots were ballots that were sent on time but delivered within one or two days after the election. Now in other states, those ballots would count. In our state, ballots have to be received by 8 p.m. on election day to count. They can't just be postmarked by election day. Uh, yet those are valid ballots. And in my view, voters should not be disenfranchised based on no fault of their own or based on failures of the Postal Service to deliver ballots on time. Uh, so based on that, those are the numbers that I'm concerned about, especially if that 10,694 number or that uh, 6,400 number of ballots sent in uh, but received late doubles uh, this fall. Uh, and if that, that uh, number of valid votes that otherwise should be counted are unable to be counted because the legislature doesn't change their law or the Postal Service fails to deliver those ballots on time, that is a disenfranchisement that may potentially impact the outcome of, of our elections. That's what I'm concerned about. Now, as we do other things to prepare for the fall in terms of seeking that elusive, evasive, perfect election, uh, we are and have been preparing and implementing best practices at every level in our state uh, so that we can get as close to perfection as possible as we um, build out an infrastructure that seeks to ensure everyone can get their ballot and return their ballot, whether they do it through the mail or in person at their clerk's office early or in a precinct on election day. That said, you have so many variables this year. Of course, the pandemic, challenges at the national level, uh, the misinformation and disinformation flowing through our, our social media, 
Uh, and so there are many different challenges in place that, that stand to impact that perfect election that we all seek to administer. Uh, and that's why voters need to be vigilant as well to ensure that they're doing everything that they can to learn about those challenges, to ensure that they're getting their ballot, that if their ballot doesn't arrive, they know how to get it. If they run out of time, they know how to return their ballot and ensure that it's gonna count, that they can track their ballot through our system. So that engaged, vigilant voter is gonna be critical as we seek to build that perfect election structure where every vote is counted and every voice is heard. Like I said, this has been a different kind of hour for the takeout because this issue is so big and we wanted to get as many varied voices and perspectives as possible. For our radio audience, we have to say goodbye. But for those on CBSN and on podcast platforms, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial, continuing this very different kind of episode because these are different times and we are aware, possibly as we've never been before, how crucial voting is and the kind of structural issues related to it because we're thinking about how to do that in a pandemic. So lots of voices. We've tried to put as many together as possible. In this especial, you'll hear from two more secretaries of state, one Democrat, one Republican. We'll start with the Democrat, Jenna Griswold, Colorado, a state that votes almost exclusively by mail, how they do it and the kind of things they've encountered that makes it work there. Jenna Griswold, Colorado Secretary of State. From your perspective, is there anything that states have to get right that don't have a long history in that state a vote by mail? Well, the first and foremost is making sure that the state's citizens are aware of their options. Uh, so what states can do is run voter engagement programs to make sure they're communicating with their voters. Uh, and I will say the Colorado election model is pretty straightforward and I encourage the nation to look towards us because we know how to run fabulous elections. Uh, and there's three parts to the election model. You register to vote, then you're sent a ballot right to your house, and you can vote that ballot and return it to a drop box by the mail or even in person. And of course, you can always go vote in person too. And one of the things that we've heard from other states, Washington is one example. We've got a chance to get to know Secretary of State Wyman there. You quite possibly may know her. Uh, is that it helps in vote by mail states when there's a long period of experience. And if you're doing this for the first time, there will be rough adjustment periods. And it seems that some states like New York, possibly Pennsylvania, may be experienced that or may experience that come November. Your thoughts? Well, I would say we knew in March that there was a high likelihood that Americans would have to vote in November during a pandemic. Uh, and there was plenty of time to expand vote by mail. What was lacking was the federal resources and the will. Uh, with that said, a lot of states have expanded mail ballots, uh, and we really encourage them to reach out to us. We want to help. Uh, you know, I've been talking with secretaries of state from across the nation, and our elections division is sharing best practices. Uh, and there's a couple things states can do. So, for example, in Colorado, we send out ballots weeks before Election Day, three weeks to be exact. So there's plenty of time for the ballot to arrive to the voter. We also advise Coloradans to no longer return their ballots by mail eight days beforehand. Uh, because under our state law, you have to actually have your ballot in the county clerk's hands on election day. And we want to make sure that no one sends in their ballot too late. Uh, so those are some of the things that other states can do. Uh, and the last thing I would say, which is top of mind, especially right now, is invest heavily in ballot drop boxes. Uh, the president, very unfortunately, just said yesterday that he is intentionally stopping funding to the U.S. Postal Service to try to stop mail ballots. Uh, and I want to be really clear and say that is voter suppression. But what states can do is add more drop boxes, just like we're doing in Colorado. Why do those work and why are they safe? 
Well, they work because they're convenient, accessible, and secure. Uh, they're big drop boxes. They weigh a lot. They're bolted into the ground. Uh, we require lighting to make sure that we can monitor them and 24-hour security surveillance. Uh, we also have a, a chain of custody with all of our ballots, and when ballots are collected, they're done so by bipartisan team of election judges. Uh, so overall, Colorado is commended for our access. We have the highest percentage of registered voters in the nation. Uh, we also have a, usually the highest turnout in the nation, and we've also been commended as the safest state to cast a ballot in today. You made a glancing reference to this, but I want to make sure I get your full thoughts on this. The president's also talked about funding for the U.S. Postal Service. Some secretaries of state have written a letter to the uh, head of the U.S. Postal Service to get some clarification on both moves that the Postal Service has taken, moves it is contemplating, and issues that might delay actual delivery of mail related to this election. Your thoughts? Well, Major, I, I want to share with you that my mom is a nurse, and she's been saving lives on a COVID unit. Uh, and as Secretary of State, my priority is making sure that we save lives and also safeguard our democracy. And that's what vote by mail does. It enables us to social distance and still increase access even during a pandemic. Uh, it's akin to wearing a mask. It can save American lives. It can save frontline workers like my mom. That's why I'm so passionate about it. Uh, and I'll tell you, I am very taken aback and very concerned about this administration and what it is doing uh, across multiple fronts to disenfranchise folks in November. Uh, to say that the Postal Service uh, is trying to slow down mail uh, is disenfranchisement. It's taking away the safest way for Americans to vote and forcing them to risk their lives to cast a ballot. This is the United States. We do not have to have our elections run like that. We don't need to have Americans wait five, six hours in the rain, in the sun, in the snow, or crowd into busy polling centers. There is a better way. Uh, and that's why I am so passionate about expanding vote by mail for all. It will increase access. It increases security because Russia cannot hack a mail ballot. Uh, and it's the best way to vote and social distance. Our next and final voice is a gentleman named Paul Pate, Republican Secretary of State of Iowa. He is the outgoing president of the National Association of Secretaries of State, meaning he has talked to secretaries of state all across the country about how to prepare, how to think about, and how to reassure voters that this work is being done, can be done, what things to think about in maybe a cautious way, and things that you might hear about that sound frightening, but you can safely dismiss. Again, Paul Pate, Iowa Republican Secretary of State. It's been one thing we have professionals in all these 50 states who uh, do this every day. Uh, of course, it's the presidential cycle, and we are preparing for the worst, actually. We hope for the best, but we know we have to prepare for the worst. Uh, we try to provide as much transparency in the process as well. The biggest challenge is, as you just pointed out, is perception. Uh, we want to make sure voters uh, have the facts, and that's our, one of our highest priorities. As you talk to secretaries of state around the country, as I know you do, what are their biggest concerns and or worries? Well, the COVID is still very unpredictable. So for many of us, we are trying to uh, avoid putting people in, in risk by going to a polling site uh, if they're in the high risk category. So many of us, including our state of Iowa, uh, is promoting uh, the absentee ballot process uh, so that people won't, uh, who are in that high risk area at least will avoid that. Uh, so we don't have lines and we don't expose our poll workers. Uh, the other is still cybersecurity. We have bad actors out there. They're, they're here every day. We just solved the issue with the Twitter uh, attacks. Uh, well, they don't can't change votes in our country, but they sure can cause chaos and uh, create doubt in people's minds if they start messing around with our websites or logging out messages that are, are totally incorrect. And... In that regard, how patient will Americans have to be waiting for final returns? And is that a new place where these so-called bad actors might be found? Well, if we see more people voting absentee, it's going to take a little longer to count those paper ballots or the ballot process your state uses. Uh, so we do ask for that. You know, if the polls close at nine o'clock, we're not going to probably have the results at 9.05. I think the higher priority here is to have accuracy rather than speed. So a little patience on that front uh, would be much appreciated. And we, we spent a lot of time uh, conveying that to our friends in the media and to the public to give them reasonable expectations. Uh, that's a key part. But misinformation is still the number one uh, 
thing that's being done by the bad actors in China and uh, Russia and other countries to create uh, doubt in the legitimacy of our elections. And it's uh, not true, but they are going to keep pushing it. And as long as people take their social media as the gospel, we have a problem. So we've got to challenge people to check out the facts, go to uh, reliable sources for their for the answers to their questions. As I talk to secretaries of state around the country, they say it could be days before we know the final results. True? Uh, it could, particularly for some of the larger states who have uh, uh, significant populations, uh, depending on what method they're using. Uh, but again, we are ramping up for that, trying to prepare for that. Uh, in our case of Iowa, we have to recruit and identify 10,000 poll workers. And uh, we've started that process right now. And we want to make sure those are all on board, trained and prepped and protected from the COVID. And uh, with that kind of uh, approach, we feel confident we will be able to get the results done early in Iowa, or at least on time, I should say. Is mail-in voting a path, as President Trump has frequently asserted, to widespread fraud? I think there's a lot of discussion on that front. That's the politics of it. I've appealed to the, the politicians to please leave that discussion until when Congress reconvenes or actually it should be an issue that states have and let their legislatures debate whether or not they want to have that in their state. Uh, we're in the middle of an election cycle here, and we don't need to be confusing or misleading anybody on the facts. And the facts are we have a lot of safeguards in place, and we will acknowledge no fraud is acceptable. So we're going to keep battling to make sure that is the goal we maintain. Thanks for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this trip around America a little bit, at least from the perspectives of Secretary of State, and learned a lot more about what is, and more importantly, what isn't going to happen to our election in 2020 and how it can be done and how lots of hardworking people of both parties are doing the day-to-day -day efforts to make sure the final result accurate, verifiable, and trusted. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.